Hey there. Thanks for joining us at Risen King Church for our weekly podcast. We pray you meet God and know that you are loved today. Be sure to visit us at risenking.life to take all of your next steps and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Enjoy the message. For the last number of weeks, we've been looking at God's blueprint for renewal. It has been impressed on me as I've been in prayer, as I've been just seeking the Lord for the future of our, of our church and for the work of the Spirit here where we live is that we will have to have a renewal. We will have to have, in a way, not just rebuild our church after COVID and all the things that have happened this year, but, but to, to have a new church, to have a new work, to have a new move of the Spirit of God. And so what we've been looking at is, what is the blueprint for that kind of rebuilding or that kind of reviving or that kind of renewal? And in Acts chapter 2, we see what a spirit-filled, a spirit-baptized church looks like and how it not only affects the people who are a part of the church, but transforms the entire community. And, and in Acts 5, you see five elements, or I like uh, how Pastor Tim Keller calls them five vitamins for life in the church. And they're all present at once, not one of them and, then, and not the others, but all five present. A devotion to apostolic or in-depth teaching, in-depth fellowship, friendship called koinonia, vibrancy in worship, an evangelism that's very effective. It said every day they were adding to their number. And a social concern that comes out of a social compassion that produces social healing. So we've been looking at these different elements or these different vitamins, and today I want to talk about the vital element of worship. What is, what is it that Jesus says the Father is looking for? You see, the Holy Spirit is going to anoint Jesus' blueprint for worship. He's not, going to, he's not going to empower a counterfeit form of worship or a lesser form of worship. He is going to take the blueprint that Jesus says is the blueprint for worship and life, and he's going to anoint that. And so we need to align our worship with Jesus' blueprint for worship. And so in John chapter 4... When Jesus is at the well in Samaria and he meets a woman who comes to the well at this strange hour because she's, in a way, an inappropriate woman, and he begins to converse with her. And he begins to tell her that he is the living water from which, if you will drink, you will never thirst again. And then she begins to have a discussion with Jesus. And in John chapter 4, verses 16 and following, Jesus says to her, Go, call your husband, and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. 
The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. Now, what this passage reveals and what Jesus is letting us see by His Holy Spirit is that every human heart, every human being has an adoration apparatus. There is something in you that was made to worship. But the problem is that when what you are worshiping is counterfeit or when you're, what you're worshiping is not God, then your apparatus for adoration shrinks. But when you worship the true and living God, the apparatus within you expands. As you worship, and this is so important because, you see, your whole life begins to get order. It begins to get meaning. It begins to get purpose. You begin to get power when your apparatus of adoration is expanding because worshiping the living God humanizes you. Anything else dehumanizes you. So then we ask this question, well, what is Jesus teaching us about worship? What is, what is worship according to the Lord Jesus Christ? And he uses this word when he talks about worshiping here. He uses a word that means very literally to throw yourself down. To, to hit the floor. To prostrate yourself before anything that you consider or recognize as superior. So the idea of worship is to recognize the superiority and to actually appropriately respond to it by prostrating yourself, by hitting the ground. So what Jesus is talking about with worship is this. Recognizing you are in the presence of God, the presence of someone so superior to you, responding, falling to the ground, prostrating yourself is the appropriate response to God's honor, to His glory, and to his status. Now another way to talk about this idea of worship, of, of understanding that you are actually seeing something that is worthy of you. So a great way to look at this is to watch uh, a new mother um, as she really takes care of her baby. Now, it's not that she sees the baby as superior, but what she sees is the value of the child. She sees the preciousness of the child. And so 
you catch, particularly new moms, and I, I believe new dads as well, but you particularly see new moms just gazing at the baby, just looking, just, just being able to spend time just looking at this child, not having to do anything but just to look. You see, the child is treated with the utmost care. There's a sensitivity and there's a, a way of caring that produces and always ready to serve. To hear a cry is to answer the cry, whether it's to feed the child or to cuddle the child or to change the child. See, that kind of, that kind of care and that kind of value given by a new mom to a new baby is really the idea behind worship. The original word was worth-ship. Seeing that something has value. Seeing that something is precious. And then responding to, the, to that, that, that acknowledgement of the value. Responding and saying, this is what you're worth. I will give myself. I will serve. I will... I will prostrate myself before you. This is the idea, you see, of real worship is that you see God's worth and then you give him what he is worth. You respond according to his worth, his value, and his preciousness. So the question then comes, since everybody has an apparatus of adoration, what is it? That we are worshiping. What are we adoring? What are we considering superior? What are we considering precious? Well, there's some ways to look at that. If there's anything in your life that when you do it or a person that you're with, and it seems like whenever you're together or whenever you're doing this, time just seems to fly. You're in so much enjoyment that you don't even notice the time. Well, what that means is when that's happening, you're experiencing eternity in that moment. You're, you're experiencing a freedom from time. It's effortless. feels timeless. Well, that's an experience of worship. What you worry about the most, what you can't get out of your mind without thinking through, how can I make this outcome or this result, or how can I reach this goal? And you begin to put emotional you know, worry, anxiety, care towards it. Well, what you worry about is what you worship. You have given that the place of value that you're willing, in a, in a way, to prostrate all of your emotions, your intellectual energy, your willpower towards an outcome. A third one is conflict between competing demands in your life, where does your money go? Where does your time go? Where does your talent go? None of us has unlimited money. None of us has unlimited time or talent. So there are a lot of competing forces that are saying, invest your money here. Spend your time here. Give your talents to this. Where do you give your talents? Where do you give your time? Where do you choose to give your money? Scripture is really clear. It says what you have the money for is what you worship. I had a, a, 
a family in my church uh, that I pastored back in, in Atlanta that had terrible financial circumstances, incredibly difficult psychological circumstances. They rest, uh, uh, the, uh, the oldest daughter wrestled with anorexia, was in the hospital numerous times. The, the mom had unbelievable control issues. And the, the father was just lost in the midst of all of this. He uh, was an independent contractor, a painter. And, and instead, of, instead of diving into his work to make sure his family had enough money, as he started meeting with me, he began to tell me that instead of painting, he would go to the movies. And even while his family was wrestling, even to have enough food to eat, he would purchase a bucket of chicken and take it to the movies. So instead of working for his family or working to, to make sure that his family had financial security, he made sure he had a bucket of chicken and he had a movie ticket. And, and he felt like because his life was so difficult and his life was so hard, that he deserved that, that that was what was owed to him. And it was very baffling because in many ways he could not see what was wrong with that. You see, there, where his money went to was him. Even though his family needed it desperately, where the food went to was him. Even though his family needed desperately to have financial security, he refused to provide it, but he always provided for himself. You see, what you have your money for is the indicator of what you worship. And the only way that you truly become fully you is when you realize that you were made to worship something bigger than yourself and that God himself is the only appropriate, only proper object of your worship. So the Lord Jesus begins to unpack to this woman at the well how we worship. Uh, this is a theological moment in a way, but it also is a relationship and intimacy issue. If you relate to somebody in a way that doesn't connect with them, you're not relating. God prescribes in his word how we are to worship him. We don't just get to imagine. We don't just get to make up. We have to go and look at our Lord Jesus and say, how does he prescribe that we worship the Father? And so one of the fundamental truths that comes across in this passage is you can only communicate with God if you have an intimate relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other way to communicate to the Father except through the Son. Now, that connection is so essential that there is no relationship, there is no intimacy with God unless you have come to God through relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. In these days of, uh, of uh, quarantining and, and COVID-19, 
everything that I've had to do as far as work has had to be through internet, through Wi-Fi. And almost immediately, once we started doing Zoom calls and, and uh, doing Facebook Live and all these things, I realized my internet speed was, uh, was really lacking. It was really not up to requirement. And I realized that if I was going to be effective in doing my work, I was going to have to have a greater, um, uh, you know, a, a greater speed, a greater connection. And so I, I paid the money, I paid the extra in order to have the maximum connection that I could get. But here's the thing, just having the connection doesn't mean I know how to utilize the connection. I still have to actually take, you know, steps and get online and utilize my computer and utilize Facebook and utilize Zoom and all these things. Just having the potential is not the same as utilizing the connection. And that's what worship is. Worship isn't just giving yourself the potential. It is actually utilizing the connection. I have people all the time who say to me, I don't need church. I don't need worship. I don't need the Bible. I have nature. I can worship God and connect with God in nature. Let me just tell you, that is a huge lie that people believe. Yes, nature declares the glory and the wisdom of our God. But let me tell you, uh, uh, if you have a Ford... And you begin to look at that Ford and you're saying, wow, this is a wonderful design and I really like this. And you open the hood, you're not going to be talking to Henry Ford. You're not going to have a relationship with Henry Ford. You'll have a relationship with his creation. But you'll have no knowledge of and you'll have no relationship with Henry Ford just because you have a Ford. And what people are doing is they're looking at the creation and they have some relationship with the creation, which points to the creator. But they have no relationship, no intimacy, no structural connection unless they have Jesus. There's no way to connect to the Father except through a structural a relationship connection with Jesus. And so the, so the whole conversation at the well is Jesus revealing how to have that connection. And what is so awesome here is he's revealing this connection and how she can have this connection to a woman that he's not even supposed to be talking to. She's a fallen woman. She's an inappropriate woman. But you know, even as he exposes that she has five husbands, or has had five husbands, and even now the one, the man she's with is not her husband. He's not doing it to embarrass her. He's doing it to begin to open up grace to her. He's doing it to reveal his nature to her so that she can respond and get a connection to the Father. But you see, when he touched on her personal data, when he touched on her personal information, you can see her flinch. You can see that she doesn't want to get personal. She says, oh, I perceive that you are a prophet, sir. See, he wants to get personal with her. She goes theological with him. 
Again, what an irony. Here's a woman that no one in her town wants to have any conversation with, or else why would she be at the well at the heat of the day when no one else is there? And yet, even in that moment, she puts up her religious defenses and gets theological with God. (laughs) Well, listen to her background. She's a Samaritan. The Samaritans had taught her from the time she was born that the Jews did not have real religion. That the real religion, the real connection with God was the mountain in Samaria. The true worship was the Samaritan worship. And that the only God who was really God was the God of the Samaritans. And this had been drilled in her. It had been drilled in her. And so she is being confronted with an explosion and, of her framework. Of all that she had been taught, she's going to have to, in a sense, reject all her religious background, her tradition, her culture, her race, in order to receive a real connection with God through Jesus Christ. She's going to have to humble herself and come to the Father through his Jewish son. It's against everything within her. Plus, she's got no, she's got no morality to give her leverage. She has no, she doesn't have a life she can say, look at my life. She, she, you look at her life and it's a mess. She has no security. She has no future. So she's going to have to humble herself in order to receive a relationship with God through Jesus. And so she begins this kind of argument about worshiping on the mountain of the Samaritans, the Samaritan worship center, in a sense. And Jesus answers in a very interesting way. He doesn't give the Jewish answer. He doesn't say, no, you must worship in Jerusalem. But neither does he say, oh, you can worship anywhere. There are many people who want to say, see, you don't need the temple, and you don't need this or that. You can worship God anywhere because God is spirit. But that is not what Jesus is saying here. He is really clarifying. He says, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. What's he saying in this? You see, he he refers to the hour again and again. Do you understand what he's talking about? He's talking about the hour of his death. He's talking about how he's going to go into hell for her. That when the darkness descends on the cross, when the darkness descends on the land, when Jesus is being crucified, Jesus, who knew no sin, will become the sins of the Samaritan woman. And he will pay the price for those sins. He will become her adultery. He will become her fallenness. He'll become her inappropriateness. He will become that for her so that then she can have a loving, legitimate, adopted daughter relationship with the Father. And what signals that the price is paid first is that when the earthquake comes, as Jesus says, the debt is paid, paid in full, then the veil of the temple in Jerusalem 
the veil between the most holy place and the holy place, the veil ripped in two. You see, what God was saying in that moment is you no longer need this temple because Jesus is the temple. You no longer need uh, a spotless lamb. You don't need bulls or goats. You don't need turtle doves or pigeons or any of these other things. Jesus is the sacrifice that they all pointed to, and he has been accepted. You don't need the candelabras of the temple. You don't need all the lighting fixtures of the temple. You have Jesus who is the light of the world. You don't need the showbread in the temple anymore because Jesus is the bread of life. And Jesus himself proclaimed that through his hour, through his death, and then through his resurrection, that he's the way. That he's the only way to the Father. There is no other intimate connection with God except through Jesus. That's what he's saying to this woman, but he's also saying to her, it is for you that I have done this, and it is to you that I invite you into this worship. You see, what Jesus is explaining is there's no other way to God except through him. You see, if you try to get to God without Jesus, God is a consuming fire, and you will be burned up. But if you come through the Lord Jesus Christ, even though your sins are as scarlet, even though you're, you lived, you know, you had five husbands and the one you're living with now is not your husband, then Jesus says, you too can worship my father. My father can become your father. Well, just because people can have this connection or because they have the potential of this connection doesn't necessarily mean that they're using the connection. So Jesus explains how you use the connection. He says worship must be in spirit and in truth. One of the presidents of Westminster Theological Seminary that I used to love to listen to was a man by the name of Edmund Clowney, and he said you have to have order and you have to have ardor. In other words, there has to be, for true worship of God, there has to be a passionate order. In other words, the truth of the scriptures, the truth of God's prescribed ways of worshiping him form a blueprint of the spirit life. But within those lines of the blueprint, there is to be an ardor. There is to be a passion. There is to be an intensity. And what I've seen over the course of my, my life, both in the church and as a pastor, is some people have no lines whatsoever. They don't know the blueprint. They don't know the prescription of God whatsoever. And so they have out-of-control passion. So they have a strange fire. They have a wildfire. They have fire, but they don't have the blueprint. And then I've been with others who are so adamant about the lines that they have so much you know, so much desire to control the lines, but they have no passion. You see, we don't have passion about the lines. <laughs> we have passion about the one we're worshiping. And why do we have lines? Because we want to worship him in the way he prescribes in spirit and in truth. And so Jesus is really clear. You know, he's speaking of this as, as a worship that comes from your, your heart. How does this unfold? Well, Paul talks about this and others talk about this, how for years you can read a scripture. You can, you can know what it has to say. 
But then one day, or it could be in a service, it could be, just be that you're praying, or it could just be that you're just, you're, you don't, you're not even trying necessarily to meditate on it, but all of a sudden, the truth of that spirit comes to you. That's what Paul calls it. He says, it comes to you. And the light dawns on you and the heart is struck with this truth. You see, as we engage with the Holy Spirit, as we engage with the truth of God's Word, then what's happening is we're beginning to get a sensitivity in our hearts to truth. Not just as information. You receive the power of that truth. That truth begins to be truly known by you and intimate. You're intimate with it. One way of talking about this kind of spirit and truth worship is this. A striking on the heart that has been made truth sensitive by the Holy Spirit. When you truly have an experience of worship with God, it is because your heart has been made truth sensitive. And as you encounter the Holy Spirit and He is applying the truth of God's Word and God's heart and God's will, it strikes your heart because your heart has become truth sensitive. So, if you really want to worship God, then you have to allow the Spirit to strike your heart in an ever-increasing degree. See, the amount of truth that you are able to contain, the amount of truth that's able to transform you will always be in direct proportion to your allowing and not resisting the operation of the Spirit with the truth. Paul calls this, when we resist, when we shut this down, he calls it grieving the Holy Spirit, putting out the Spirit's fire. So I'd like to just unpack that a little bit for you because this is what keeps your apparatus of adoration small. We can actively grieve the Holy Spirit. And anything that the Bible says, God is asking and saying, will you do this? In many ways, you could compare it to when a friend says, please don't do this. It hurts my feelings. Or... I've seen over the course of 40 years of marriage that there are certain things and ways of speaking that hurt my wife when I do it. And I can see in her eyes, and sometimes she has been able to say to me, when you do that, this hurts. Will you please not do this anymore? Okay, I'll give you one that I had to change is my tendency was, I'm going to do what I want to do, and then I'll ask her to forgive me. I'll say I'm sorry, I'll apologize, and I'll ask her to forgive me, but I'm going to do what I want to do, and then I'll ask her to forgive me. Well, my wife is a very smart woman, and she started to really realize quickly that I was always doing whatever I wanted to do, and so my I'm sorry had no meaning. I'm sorry had no, no correspondence to the hurt that I had caused her. And so to continue to do that, to do whatever I wanted to do, and then to say I was sorry would actively grieve my wife and it would destroy our intimacy in our marriage. 
because she couldn't trust me because I'm apologizing, but she knows I'm going to do it again and again. I have learned that to grieve my wife is to break fellowship with her, is to break the closeness with her. Well, guess what the Holy Spirit is saying? When I have asked you to do something in, in my word, when I have led you to do something, even by, by illumination or revelation, or I've spoken and I've nudged you in a direction, and you didn't do it, do you not know that you are grieving me like a friend? You're grieving me like a spouse. You're, you're cutting off intimacy with me. Well, that's the act of grieving. A lot of us try to be very sophisticated, actually, in our grieving. So what we do is we passively grieve the Spirit. We intentionally stay away from God's Word so that we won't have to hear what grieves the Holy Spirit. We stay away from prayer so that He can't reveal or speak into the places where we have distanced ourselves from Him. So what happens when you stay away from the Word and you stay away from prayer is you keep away from hearing from God and then you also keep away from communicating your heart to God. The, the fascinating thing to me over the years is that we actually believe this works. <laughs> that you can be a believer who stays away from God's word. That you can believe, be a believer who stays away from prayer and somehow you're protecting yourself from God. You're avoiding God. Do you not know that he knows all the things in your heart? He knows why you're staying away. He knows when you're staying away. Whether you're actively grieving him or passively grieving him, do you not understand the one you're hurting is not just the Holy Spirit. You're actually grieving yourself. You're shrinking your apparatus for life. You're shrinking your capacity for power. And all the while thinking you're getting your way when really you're enslaved to a lie. So the heart of worship, according to Jesus, as he speaks to this woman, is that you can know God. Not just that you honor God or you recognize that there is a God or that you try to obey as best you can his commandments, but you really, really know him. It's amazing how many people over my 16 years here at Risen King have come up to me and said, hey, I, I, you know, I'm not sure I agree with what you're preaching I just want you to know I do believe in God. But what, what, they're, what they're revealing is they don't know God. They honor that there is a God. They're trying hard to be good people. They're trying to obey what they think is the morality of Christianity. That, friends, is not the connection. That is not the heart of worship. The heart of worship is only from a person who has intimate personal communion with the living God. Over the years, I've found that there are certain questions that you ask people that are very personal questions, very spiritual questions, and their answers are usually very indicative of their worship life, of their apparatus of adoration. So I asked this, I said, well, what has God been teaching you lately? You see that, that saying that God has an intimate communication with you and you're receiving it. And what are you learning? What is he teaching you? Or get a little more personal. How is your prayer life? 
And how's your experience of God's grace and love? How's it been going lately? Tell me about your experiences of God's grace and His love. Immediately, if a person does not have intimacy and worship, they will really get angry and defensive about such personal... Religion is private, they will say. It's a personal thing. Why are you asking me these, these personal questions? You see, what that does is not reveal that religion is private, because it's not. But it reveals their own spiritual condition that they don't really know God. Or I've asked those questions to people before, and the look on their face is utter confusion, kind of a dumbfoundedness. Luther, Martin Luther had a funny saying. He said, they'll be staring at you like, like a cow stares at a new gate. Cow just looks dumbfounded. What is that? What in the world is that? And what's it for? And that's kind of the idea sometimes with people as, they, as they're asked personal, intimate questions about their life in God. They're either angry and defensive or they're confused. And so Jesus is saying that when you worship God, it's because you're actually hearing from Him. You're actually experiencing His truth operating in you. You can look at it this way. You begin to have a communion with Him that is ever-increasing in experiences of His love. This, is, this has been one of the most wonderful things of centering in my life is, is no matter how confused I've gotten at times or how sometimes off track I've gotten at, at, at times and, 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 and wanted results or wanted outcomes that weren't God's outcomes for me. And even when I've, I've fallen into disobedience in some way, this is the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that I come back to this centering truth. I am my beloved's and he is mine. And it's interesting, sometimes I've come to the Lord and said, Lord, I did this wrong and Lord, I did this wrong and I was wrong about this. And he says, quiet, quiet, son. You belong to me. I know you, you know me. I am yours and you are mine. It's been interesting that it wasn't about doing better. It wasn't about atoning for the mistakes. It was always about clarifying his love for me and clarifying my passion, my ardor is for him. See, when you get confused about what your passion is for, you'll get lost. You'll shrink. You'll diminish but if you find again and you realize again, I was made for him. And he has given himself to me. But not only, not only do you grow when you're in this worship, not only do you grow in terms of his love and experiences of his love, but he wants to, he wants to impart to you his wisdom. One of the most important things that any person is pursuing is they want to know the meaning of their life, which also includes that they want to know, why am I here? What's my purpose? Do you understand? Only as you worship, only as that apparatus of adoration begins to humanize and begins to get more and more capacity, only then do you become wise. And he loves to share all his wisdom with us. <laughs> the other thing that I've found, and and, and Jesus hints at this when he talks with the woman at the well, is there's, 
There's such life in serving him. See, I spent a lot of my prayer life wrestling with God to make him do what I wanted him to do for me. And when I studied closely the Lord's Prayer, before we ever ask for the daily bread, he says, will you align your life with my kingdom and with my will? So he's saying, you need to wrestle not to get the daily bread, but you need to wrestle to get your life into alignment with all that is true of the kingdom of God. You wrestle in prayer for God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven, for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Guess what happens? Not only do you experience purpose and meaning, but you start to get answers. It is incredibly easy to get distracted by the traumas of life. It is incredibly easy to look at personal pain or to look at pain that comes against your family or your community and to get derailed by that pain, by injustice, by unfairness. It's easy to get derailed and to forget that we are not wrestling simply so that we are not in pain. We're not wrestling simply so that things will fall into fairness for us. We are wrestling for the kingdom of God to come for all people. For what is true of the kingdom of God to be a reality in our community, in our family, and in our own lives. And that doesn't happen if I'm saying, my will be done. That only happens when I can humble myself and say, your will be done. You understand? Worship takes the focus off of you. And yet, while you're taking the focus off of you, the blessings that flow to you are increasing experiences of His love. Increased meaning and purpose because you become wise. And instead of being distracted, even by the fiery darts of the enemy against you, your family, or your community, you say, no, I am here. I'm not wrestling against flesh and blood. I'm wrestling against principalities and powers. I'm wrestling them down so that the truth of the kingdom of God, the reality of the kingdom of God, will be true in my family, will be true in my life, and will be true in my community. Those peaceable fruits of righteousness. You and I need to, we have to go after the kingdom. And when you lift up your eyes from your own pain, and you realize that your pain is signaling that the kingdom hasn't come in fullness yet, then you still have work to do. You still have prayers to pray. You still have a purpose. You still have a meaning for your life. Isn't it interesting in verse 23? We don't have to beg him to let us worship. In verse 23, Jesus says, the Father seeks worshipers. Do you understand? He can't wait. When you, when you get your apparatus in alignment with worshiping of the true God, of the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, He can't wait to pour out love and wisdom and the kingdom. So in other words, what Jesus is saying, it's not an obstacle with God. We're not asking a reluctant God it's our own resistance. It's our own obstacles. He wants it this much. 
that he would send his son even to an obscure place in Samaria to pursue a fallen woman and say, he's seeking you to be his worshiper. Now, there are a lot of things you can teach on about worship, but I would like you to get really clear. You see, just because you sing doesn't mean you worship. Just because you like a certain style of music doesn't mean you worship. You can sing music, you can, you can play music, you can do all that thing. That's not necessarily worship. It can be a means to worship, but it's not necessarily worship. Now, I, I admit that many times when we are worshiping God through music, through praise and, and song, praise and and, and hymns or songs or whatever, spiritual songs. In the midst of the song, sometimes you can have an accelerated sense of God's manifest presence. You can feel your heart race a little more. You can feel a warmth in your heart. You can feel something in your body even. But again, that's not worship. That's an invitation to worship. Because worship is a conscious response on your part where you see or you feel or you experience what God is worth, who He is, how much superior to you He is, how much more precious than you He is. When you see that, and you see it consciously and you see it clearly, then... Worship is you give him what he's worth. I, I like this. It, it just boils down very simply. Uh, Tim Keller uh, details this out, and it was very helpful. It's a way to summarize. There's basically two phases of worship. Everything around worship can lead you into these two phases. But when it comes to you, and when it comes to worship, this is what has to take place. You have to see him as he is. You have to see how superior he is. You have to see how, how worthy he is. You have to see how precious he is. And then seeing that, you respond to his worth by giving him what he is worth. That's real worship. So people can come and there's a connection. There's a manifest presence of God in our midst. And we're singing songs and we're studying His Word together, and you could still not worship if you won't see what He's worth and then give Him what He's worth. So, let me give you some examples of this. I hope you're tracking with me in this. In Romans chapter 7, you've got the Apostle Paul, who was a very, very, kind of unbelievably good rabbi. He was, he was, he was an intellectual giant. And he knew the scriptures. And, and, and he says in Romans 7, he says, I knew that coveting was wrong. I knew that covetousness was a sin. But then he said, but then the commandment came to me. All right, so you see, something more than just an intellectual ascent is happening here. Here's an experience of the power of the word of God, the power of God himself. And he said, God is calling me to a contentment in him. He said, it came to me. It applied to me. And here's what I knew. It wasn't just that covetousness was, was a sin, or to covet was a sin, or to envy was a sin. 
He said he was asking me to love God so much as to be content in him. And he said, when I saw this, when I saw he was calling me and showing me that I could find my contentment in him, he said, it slew me. It destroyed me. Because he said, I had been trying to find my contentment in everything else but him. See, he was a rabbi. He was a religious person. He knew coveting was wrong, but he didn't see how it applied to him. He didn't see how... It spoke to him. He just tried not to covet. But then he saw that God was his contentment. And that everything else he had sought for satisfaction and fulfillment was a covetousness to have something other than God. And he said it slew him. It showed him who he was. Job as well. There's a great example in Job. Job said to God, again, he never saw God, friends. He saw the storm and he heard the voice. But notice what he said. I had heard of you, but now I have seen you with my eyes. He didn't see him with his physical eyes. It was a storm. It was a voice. What is he saying? He says, the eyes of my heart have seen you. The truth of who you are has become real to me. In other words, he said, I knew and believed that there was a God, but now you're real to me. In other words, you have been transfigured in the sight of the eyes of my heart. And basically he's saying, up until that moment, I had made you too small in my eyes. So what happens when you see God as he really is, when you see the worth when you see like Paul or like Job and you say, you say, now I've seen you. Now you're real to me. You're my contentment. Everything else I've sought for cannot bring the satisfaction that worshiping you brings. Well, you're moved. In other words, you can't just see it without moving. It's an action. Worship is action. So I'm going to give you a, a list of what you're moved to do when you truly worship. And one of the first things is that you're moved to give. See, the, the presence of God moves us to give. <laughs> Even non-believers in the presence of God are moved to give. One of my favorite stories of all time. I love the, I love the great evangelist, revivalist George Whitfield. Great biography about him. I love it. But one of my favorite parts is his relationship with Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin did not believe in the Christian God. He believed there was a God, but he did not believe in at all the Christian God. But he loved George Whitfield. He thought he was one of the greatest speakers ever. And he used to actually uh, measure how far George Whitfield's voice could be heard. And this was without any amplification. And Franklin one time measured that 30,000 people could hear Whitfield's voice and this is before there were microphones or anything else. And so he was fascinated with Whitfield. But every time he would go to hear Whitfield speak, Whitfield would take up an offering for an orphanage that he supported and was a huge burden on his life in Savannah, Georgia. But everywhere he went, he took up an offering for this orphanage. And Franklin would say, every time Whitfield speaks and he gives that appeal, I take all the money I have and I give it 
to that offering. So one day he decided, I am not going to take any money whatsoever. He will not get any money out of me. And Whitfield preached, he gave his appeal, then he, he, he asked for the offering. And Franklin says, I was so moved, I asked everybody around me to loan me the money so I could give to the offering. And you begin to realize that when the presence of God is moving you, even your money can't stay in your pocketbook. What do we give him when he moves us? Well, we give him our sins. See, there are things that once were so precious, things that we thought would satisfy, but now when you really see who God is and you see his worth, they all lose their luster. They lose their luster in the light of his wonderful face. And so what are we talking about? Well, we're talking about giving him your heart, giving yourself, your talents, your time, your money. Again, just to give time, give money, give self without recognizing who God is and then your giving be a response to your heart, your head, yourself, your talents being moved by God. You see, the more you're in the presence of God, the more you're moved to give all of yourself. Think about the story of Isaiah and the presence of God. So overwhelmed, he says, I am a man undone in your presence. But as soon as God says, who will go for us? Volunteer, who will volunteer for us? Isaiah raises his hand. He says, I, here am I. Send me. Why was Isaiah, who was a man undone, he said, I'm a man of unclean lips from a people of unclean, unclean lips. And yet, he says, immediately, send me. Well, because he was worshiping. He had a capacity now to move. He had a capacity of greatness. See, I, the conclusion of this is, is pretty simple. Anyone that actually sees what God is worth will give to him all that they are worth. Anyone who actually sees what God is worth will give to God all that they are worth. This is what we need today. This, we cannot face, friends, we can't face what's happening, the uncertainties, the difficulties, the rebuilding of our lives in many ways, and nothing, I think, will ever be the same. But here we have this centering truth that he is who he's always been. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is worth all our praise, all our worship. And if you will give him all your worth, you will realize how he's given you all he's worth. Would you receive this today? Would you pray with me? Lord, we go back to how you pursued the woman at the well. And you wanted to get personal with her. She chose to get theological, to deflect, to deflect her guilt, her shame. And yet you kept coming to her and saying, look, I am the temple. I am the sacrifice. I am the living water. I am the bread of life. I am the way. Lord, I ask that anyone in my hearing, even my own heart, is powerfully stirred by who you are and all that you're worth. 
I ask now, Spirit of the living God, will you fall fresh on us that we will move now to give all that we're worth, to give our heart, our time, our talents, our money, ourselves, our creativity, that we will launch into a new day according to the blueprint of spirit-filled life, that we will have order, we'll know what we, can, what we should do, how to do it, and we'll have passion. I give myself afresh to you. In Jesus' name, amen.